we here are in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2. So please, if you would, turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Um, it probably, it, well, it, you guys know me better than that. Uh, we are, our intent is to cover three verses, um, because so much is being said. Starting in verse 8, as we left off at verse 7 last week. And I'm going to make sure my phone is turned off, um, as that would be key. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you for the privilege that it is to open up your word and expect you to speak. I know, Lord, you've got great things planned for this time, so please do a glorious and fantastic work. I pray you, your word would burst open and come alive for each of us, more alive than it's ever been, more real, more practical, more personal. I pray, God, that you would, in this time now, minister so profoundly that we will find our lives forever changed as we seek this morning to encounter you. May we truly encounter you. And Lord, in that, we just want to tell you that we love you and we want to show you that we love you in our pursuit of you and your word now. So have your way. Lord, please fill me to abundance with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that I would disappear and that you would appear. And then, Lord, fill me to overflowing that you would use this jersey now to bring you great glory and to do that ministry which you've ordained for each of us individually as well as corporately. So minister now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this morning as I would any... Uh, time I'm teaching. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let them always have the final say. It's the Bible that's the authority and will always be. Um, we know that his word endures forever, remains forever. Uh, I don't uh, in the sense of that. Um, I will. I'm an eternal being from this point on, but uh, I'm not going to be teaching you forever. And for that way, I pray I would never teach you forever, but the Holy Spirit would always be the teacher. No. Context as we work into this particular section. In chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to recognize again where he says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those that are in Laodicea, as many as not seen my face in the flesh. Uh, that's where we, that's the sort of context of this particular section. And that is again that Paul is, the word again is agony in the Greek. Uh, he's in great agony over these particular people. Uh, these are people who have not personally met him. Uh, this is a church he's seen sprung up. Epaphras has made that clear to him. Uh, seems to be the man who planted the church. And Paul has a great struggle, a great agony over not only these people, but the people of Laodicea also in the Lycus Valley as well. And so uh, and the reason primarily we'll see here is because there are challenges to this particular group of people uh, that are a little bit different than just the average. Uh, in, in all of this, I want you to look at verse 17 because it really becomes the whole crux of this particular book. When he tells us in one simple statement in that, that the substance is of Christ. Everything that Paul has been seeking to do with this church, and I find it really, by the way, very profound, is that 
Paul, recognizing a church has been established, a church has arisen. Actually, two of them went to churches in Laodicea as well. Uh, and, and in that, there are a lot of things that Paul could, at this moment, seek to make sure that they, they've got right. Um, he could send them a sort of a Paul distinctives book to make sure that they're all doing everything the way that Paul does. Uh, he could make sure that a handful of other areas are make sure that they're in check in their liturgy and the way that they do things. If they do or don't burn incense, whether they make bulletins or not, how they go and do their outreach services, whether or not rock music is of the devil or rap music and whether you can use drums or guitars or whatever the case is. There's a lot of things that could be said, but Paul having this four chapter book, and by the way, the last chapter is almost entirely hellos to people that he knows personally. Or people that he knows personally that say hello to this group. So three, primarily three chapters of doctrine. And they all revolve around this one statement. And that is the substances of Christ. That's what really is the issue here. The issue in the end of it all is going to, everything else will find its way, working its way out. If you take the biblical Christ and you apply the biblical Christ to a person who seeks to surrender to him and become like him as a result of it. And you'll find that everything sort of revolves around that. In chapter 1, verses 14 through 23, you'll find that that is his primary thrust of it. After he says hello, which as you're aware of, Paul has a tendency of spending about 100 words to say so. Uh, in verse 14, as he talks about this Jesus, he's man's redeemer through the blood, sin's forgiver. Uh, by 15 through uh, 23, he's God's image, he's creation's firstborn, creation's purpose, creation's eternal sustainer. Uh, verse 18, he is, or, um, he is the church's senior pastor, the one church's senior pastor. He is death's conqueror, he is all powers superior, he is God's fullness he is peace's reconciler. He is the foreigner's welcomer. He's the sinner's cleanser, failure's indemnity, and guilt's destroyer. And therefore, in verse 23, stay in that faith. Don't move to another Jesus. Don't move to a side issue. Don't get caught up in a lot of things. And we'll develop that issue of the substance of Christ, of course, when we get there, God willing, next week. But the fundament in all of that is that you can be swerved to another area, focus on a different thing, and still call it fully Christian, and lose the fact that the substance has to be of Christ. We're not prophecians. We're not, you know, in regards to that's our number one thrust. We're not benevolentians, like what, what, we're, what we're known for is just being nice people. We're not churchians. We're not liturgians. It's interesting, the things that identify us first and foremost has to be, if we're going to be Christians, Christ has to be the fundament. And that becomes the concern is, is that the Lord himself has, we've met him at the cross, we've said yes to that gift of Jesus Christ, he is the only sacrifice for men's sins, his resurrection to offer us a brand new life where he is the Lord. And then in that, what he warns us is that there are going to be other people, opponents, that are going to be challenging. Now, notice again in all of this, in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in, in Christ Jesus. That's what we preach. Our, our message is very simple. It's Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. When Paul speaks to the Corinthians... After having gone to Athens, where he tries the philosophy, where he tries to play this sort of poetical game, which, by the way, interestingly enough, some churches have taken that context or that story from Paul in Athens when he's at Mars Hill and built an entire church service on it. 
Their whole MO is, well, look at how Paul engaged the culture by quoting poets and getting philosophical and coming in through the back door and all of that. And yet, interesting, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, you know that I resolved, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing or to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and in him crucified. Now, understand, Corinth was the place Paul went after Athens. So Paul went to Athens, and he did that game. He played the game of, he sang their song, so to speak. He quoted their movie line, so to speak. And he did all of that stuff that's so common in engaging the culture. And then when Paul was done with it, he went, you know what? That really wasn't what I needed to do. I resolved Jesus. That's what this is about. Jesus and in him crucified. That's what people need to know. And I have learned that the church can get so busy in trying to engage a culture. In other words, we put it this way. They could be so busy crossing over, they don't bring the cross over when they do. And Paul says, him we preach. Not these things we preach. Not all of these litany of, of distinctives and points and all these bullet issues, which, by the way, still are important. They're just not the substance. The substance is Christ. But the warning is that there are other people who are going to play the Christian role with you. And all they need to do is get you a little off base. That's all they need. Now, in American football, the game is played. And by the way, a little side note, we are looking at possibly gathering a bunch of people to watch the Super Bowl. It's not a church sponsors event. Just so you know that because it's at like midnight on a Sunday night. We're going to find some place where we can all be American. But if you know the game... There is the biggest guys go up front, kind of like the scrum in, um, in that other game that's nearly a football game. And, uh, and those guys are up front, and those guys, are, the whole purpose of them is to stop everyone else from getting back at the guys with the ball. Now, the guy with the ball is either going to throw the ball or he's going to hand it off to another guy that's going to try to run past those guys. And some of those guys, in essence, are going to run alongside him to try to guard him then from the other people again that are trying to knock him down. Now, in that, you only have to be a half inch off your mark to be in a bad position because the other side is looking at getting in. And as the other side is looking at getting in, if your, if your linemen are off just a little bit, they'll find that crack and they'll run through that crack at the person and, and that person that's supposed to be blocking isn't doing their job right. But I've also learned this. One of the tools that the other side uses is that if a person is, is uh, intending to run straight towards the end zone will be to push him off to the side. And this happens a lot, for instance, in the game of basketball. Because if you can get a person right off to the side and they step out of bounds, the ball goes to the other team. If they can get them to that place, that place where they're sort of running on that line, they could put two people on them and they're kind of cornered now right in the middle of the, uh, of the court. The idea of instead of running straight towards that goal, they sort of just sideline you enough so that you can't get to the place you need to be. Now, you're still running a lot of yards. You're just not going anywhere with it. You're still doing a lot of activity. You're just not accomplishing anything with it. And this becomes a real frustrating aspect of Christianity when you're like, I'm trying so hard and I'm working so hard at this and I'm getting nothing out of it. I'm not finding myself any closer to Jesus. I'm not finding my walk in any more exemplary of him. I'm not finding those sins lessening in their grip on me. But I'm trying so hard and I'm putting forth so much effort. And that's what he wants to warn us about 
Because at the church in Colossae, he knows that there are opponents and the best damage they do is by dressing up like you, not by looking like your opponent. I mean, we've often said, look, if you're not playing the game right, you're on the other team. In verse 4 of this chapter, he calls them deceivers. In verse 8, as we see here, he calls them cheaters, literally thieves or looters. We'll talk about that in a moment. In verse 16, he calls them condemners. In verse 18, he calls them disqualifiers, self-convinced, humble angel worshipers that are self-proclaimed experts. And the essence of it all, what they are is proud frauds. That's what they are. And he warns us of that. In verse 19, he calls them disconnected from Jesus as rule makers. And he says, I want to warn you, these are people that will sit right next to you. And I'm not trying to breed any form of bizarre paranoia. But among the Christian church, if you were bold and full on and fantastical about the Lord, I mean, where you're blazing a trail with Christ in front of you and the Holy Spirit just carrying you through the whole thing, I guarantee you there are going to be people that call themselves Christians. They're going to tell you to mellow out. And the reason is you're either embarrassing them or you're challenging them. And that's the essence of it all, because nothing gets more threatened than complacency when a person's full on for the Lord. And that becomes the challenge. Now, in all of that, what we'll find is that there are four basic landmark facts. And these are, in essence, the primary issues to identify the truth from the counterfeit. He doesn't develop the counterfeit. He tells you this is what they're intending on doing, but he doesn't develop their doctrines or anything like that. But he says, you better know these four landmark truths. These are the things that are going to keep you on guard. These are the things that are to keep you right. And if we really embrace these things, we'll find ourselves not led astray like we could be. Now, one of them has already been spoken because it was in verse 3. And, and I really don't believe any of us have really embraced this like we could, including me. What he tells us is all, not some, not most, but all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. What an amazing statement. Now, that doesn't tell us that other information can't be useful. But the most valuable, the most fundamental information is Jesus. It's going to lead you or bring you to the feet of Jesus, or it's not as valuable as it pertains to be or purports to be. When it comes to the church and even when it comes to life, the most important information will always be at the feet of Jesus. And if it's not, it's not as important. What about church government? What about whether we burn incense or not? I mean, do we use a, a, a big, large board of elders or do we use a single leader that's held in accountability by others? Do we have the congregation vote on everything? Do we go with a big stone building or do we go with the sort of the Calvary tradition of a warehouse or storefront? You know, do we um, use bulletins or do we not use bulletins? What instruments do we use? You know, are we identified as being sort of the mod Christian? If so, then we all better make sure we get our Christian tattoos and our Christian piercings. Or are we identified as a more traditional Christian where, you know, maybe guys look a little bit more like men and women might look a little more feminine? Or what do we do in all of that? And listen, if it doesn't bring you to the feet of Jesus, it's not as important. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a value at all. I mean, I mean, it isn't like you dress immodestly. But on the bottom line of it all, whether you wear the blue shirt or the red shirt or whether you wear a robe or a collar or a tie or not, glorify the Lord by what you do in it. Otherwise, it's just peripheral. 
And what's interesting is how everything else but Jesus divides. And it'll divide Christians from Christians. And again, that will be developed at a later time. But know that. But he tells us, look at the important information is Jesus. That's the important information. That's the primary. Fun. And again, verse 17, the substance is of Christ. Without the substance being of Christ, everything else. And you know, people, I know you do, that are Christians, that their substance isn't Jesus. Their substance is a pet doctrine. Their substance is a methodology. Their substance is a church government. Their substance is, in other words, they're known more in their Christianity by the anity than the Christian part of it. And in it, he says, look at the substance it has to be of Christ. And the most fundamental, important thing is going to be Jesus. Now, with that in mind, take a look at these verses with me. And again, we have three verses. Now, some of you are familiar with the, the uh, clothing brand C28. Um, they're kind of, that's part of that Christian mod scene, you know, um, where everyone makes make sure that all of their hair is pushed forward. Um, which, by the way, you know, I mean, they could do that for 60 years and they'll still just kind of have that kind of comb over. They're just kind of prepping ahead of time. But um, C28 comes from, I notice I'm going like this as I do it. Uh, that comes from this verse. Now, again, I remind you, Paul is seeking for these people not to be led astray by these deceivers. And he says, beware. Now, the idea of being aware is, is simple. And here's our second landmark challenge that these people are out there. Now, again, no paranoia. You just need to know that the enemy has no interest in you scoring any points. That's why he's an opponent. And he says, beware, lest anyone cheat you. Stop there. If you're not aware, if you're not on guard, you'll be cheated. That's the obvious truth of this statement. The term for what it's worth, and this is to me where it really becomes profound. Uh, the term is sulogogeho in the Greek. And the word sulogogeho, which is the word we have here for cheat, literally means to take as spoil, to take as booty. Now think about that for a second. Now to be cheated, chances are what that means normally, but we just don't have a really good word for it in the English, to be honest, to play it out. Um, you know, we're all playing, you know, Uno. And we're playing Uno for bags of chips. And everyone's got our bags of chips. And in the end of all, if I were to cheat, I would walk away with all the bags of chips. That's kind of the idea of being cheated. I had something, but someone else got it from me. But this word goes far beyond the idea of simply being cheated. So the gogeho literally means that you are the prize that's being taken. You're the one so cheated that you are actually somebody else's prize. And the idea of... Uh, an individual, I mean, like a con man who kind of plays the game with an individual. And in the end of it all, you're their prize because they've duped you into something. And now you're their servant. You're their whatever. And we all have this in us if we're not careful. I mean, I have a twin sister and I, I can't tell you, I mean, you know, when you have a twin, you know, when you have a twin, you always kind of, if somebody wants the back rub, somebody wants the whatever, how many cars and TV sets and things she owes me because I gave her the back rub, but she promised if she didn't give me the back rub, she'd owe me the TV or the car or whatever. But in the end of it all, she won the prize, which was she got the back rub from me. I got nothing. What I got was a sleeping sister. Now, the reason I say that is, is that there are individuals, listen, there are individuals that you are their prize. 
Not because you're beautiful or special or lovely. To be honest, with all due respect, you're a number. But you're a number of an individual. And I've watched this happen, especially in the area of pet doctrines. Now, I'm talking about a doctrine that you can believe one side or the other and still be a Christian. But what will happen is you'll have a group of people and then someone will infiltrate and say, hey, wait a minute, why do you stand on this issue? And they're not trying to convert the lost now. They're trying to convert the saved. They're trying to convert Christians to their specific corner of the, of the yard. And in the end of it all, they can say, oh, I got 16 more people and blah, blah, blah. They're taking you as their, as their booty. They're taking you as their spoil. Because in the end of it all, they've got you in their camp now. There was a conference that took place about two years ago in San Luis Obispo on the central coast of California. And that particular conference seemed completely innocuous and, and not dangerous from the onset. But there were a group of people. I mean, this particular person, amongst the other things, and, and his primary point wasn't to push a pet issue. But he, he was a person that stands in a certain camp that can be a cantankerous camp of people. And what happens is a lot of people went to this thing. And as they went to this thing, those other people that were like vultures seized upon these other individuals and were relentless until those people basically acquiesced at best. And all of a sudden they were disappearing out of all of these other healthy churches to go to this particular church that focused on this one fundamental doctrinal issue. And in the end of it all, that church just said the best thing that ever happened was that conference because all of these people's eyes were open and now they're all going to our church. And they boasted of the numbers because at that point they had taken spoil of individuals and got them into their camp. Now listen, there are ways for people to take you as spoil. And that's what he focuses on now. And with that, then we better have a couple checkpoints in our own hearts to see whether or not We've been already infected by these things. Arg. Sorry. Of all kinds of my. Never mind. Now look at this with me. The first thing he lists is not music. The first thing he lists is not practic, but rather philosophical. He says, Beware lest anyone take you as spoil through philosophy. That is the first thing. And I want you to know, this is huge in the church today. Now I am, and again, I'm not telling you that thinking intelligently or logically is a foolish thing. What I'm telling you is it is never a replacement for Jesus Christ. When you ask people that are Christians do you share your faith? Why not? The primary reason why Christians don't share their faith that I've been told is because they're afraid they won't have all the answers when someone asks some questions. They're afraid they won't be knowledgeable. And I'm like, do you know Jesus? Do you know how you got saved? I do know how I got saved. Well, but you forget the gospel's the power of salvation. The Holy Spirit's the one who convinces. And he who plants and waters is literally just, he's just nothing. He's just the beneficiary of God who does the work. But we've been living now in an information era where everything is about you better have every answer because you better be able to argue them into the kingdom and philosophize. And so everything now is about make sure you know the philosophies of everything else and you can come in with your philosophical approach. Now understand, I'm a minor in philosophy, so it isn't like I don't know what this is, but I do know this about philosophy, that it's a racket. <laughs> and I dare say that. In my particular place where I was studying, 
we had a particular test on existentialism. And while we had a test on existentialism, I didn't show up for the test. I didn't take the test, but argued it afterwards that that was my point for existentialism and got an A on a test I didn't take. <laughs> and that's when I went, wow, this really is something else. But the, now listen, how many hospitals have you ever known that have been built by philosophy groups? How many orphanages do you know that have ever been built by philosophy groups? Homeless shelters, ministries to the lost, ministries to people in third world countries, giving them water, giving them healthy food. There is one verse that typifies what philosophy is by a biblical view. And the verse, by the way, is Acts chapter 17, verse 21. Now, by the way, that context of that was when Paul was in Mars Hill, by the way. That place in Athens where everyone was so busy philosophizing. And this is what the verse says, Acts 17, 21. And you can turn there if you like, so you know I'm not making it up. In Acts 17, 21, Paul is in Athens. He's about to speak at this place called Mars Hill Areopagus. And it says this, For all the Athenians, that's people from Athens, and the foreigners who were there spent their time doing nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. What philosophy is, in its simplest sense, is doing nothing but talking. Now listen. Oh, did you hear about this? Oh, listen, this guy believes people raised from the dead. Well, what about this particular individual? Did you hear about this? In other words, what philosophy is, in its simplest sense, is a kid sitting in a gymnasium without a basketball hoop and without a basketball convincing everyone that he's played basketball. The bottom line is... Philosophy is all about the thinking and talking, but no doing. And here's my checkpoint in my own walk. If I'm to take heed of this, if I'm to beware of this, I must be very careful when my walk is all about talk and not about doing. Which, by the way, can be a fundamental characteristic of modern Christianity. We come in, we listen to something, we listen to something that may be entertaining, we listen to some guy wax or whatever, eloquent or not, on some particular topic, either pertinent to scripture or not, it all depends on what church you go to, and then in all of that, you walk away and that's your Christianity, but there's no doing in that. I mean, in essence, what we really should be doing here is I should be a coach in a locker room with my whiteboard next to me Marking off my X's and O's at you guys and myself as a player coach. Knowing that in a moment we're going to take the field. And we need to know this stuff because this is how we win. This is how we don't get beat up. Or this is if we do get hit, we know how to get back up and get back in the game. This is how to actually score points and move forward. But I remember before I left America having this dream or vision, or whatever you want to call it, and I'm not the kind of person that everything's a vision. You know that. Of that very same situation. 
of there I am with my clipboard, there I am with my whiteboard, and my X's and my O's are drawn. And if you don't understand that metaphor, forgive me. If maybe I'm, I've gone a little bit sports today, but the whole idea of it is, is that you know the X's and the O's is one of them's you, one's the other team, and you're trying to show people where to move to get your place so you can actually do the plays. And so I'm drawing arrows like John Madden. Oh, this goes here and you're going to move this way. And people are in different stages of dress. Some got the full pads on. Some don't even know what in the world they're doing there. And I just watch them and they're all kind of looking at me and they're all kind of nodding and they're all kind of following along. And then I'm like, are you ready? Let's do this. And we're all, yeah! And we put our hands in. And off we run out. And then everyone runs and takes the stands. My heart was broken, and I'm like, this cannot be Christianity. This can't be my Christianity. This can't be real Christianity. Jesus didn't talk about dying on a cross and saying, what's the philosophy you need to think about? Jesus died on a cross because thinking about it wouldn't be enough to save us. Talking about it wouldn't be enough to save us. People hid in a house like this fearful of the Romans and at that point we had to decide whether or not philosophy was going to be enough for our Christianity or real life was going to be what our Christianity was going to be about we're not known by our philosophies we're known by our love we're not known by our liturgies we're known by our love and our love is not just a philosophical give me a warm hug squeeze and that's it and I think nice about you because I can still turn that into philosophy can I if the substance is Christ and Christ is about saving, then we will be too. If we're about the substance. That's the simple truth of it. And be careful. Be very, very careful. Or you are going to be taken spoiled by people who are going to lead you to feel like you're okay. If you've ever been in jobs, some of you, I would assume most of you, if not all of you, have worked to some degree. Usually, either you've been or you've seen the guy that does nothing or the girl that does nothing. Oh, they show up, maybe. Not really always on time or seldom on time, but they show up. And they kind of do, maybe, whatever. But you know they're on the road to being fired. But they feel like, and, and, and if you've ever watched this, it's a pretty good possibility you've seen this with me, where they look at the boss like the boss is from outer space. And they're like, you're fired. And they look like, well, what, are, what are you talking about? I'm fired. Like, well, here's, here's the difference. You're taking up space but doing nothing. And when you are not here, the only thing that changes is that we have more space. It's the only thing that changes. Nothing else gets done or less gets done. And they look like, what, what are you talking about? But I'm here. I have the uniform on. But we know as intelligent people that you can't do that and stay employed. Imagine you're recruited in the army. You've signed up. And there you are in the army and you're wearing the outfit. But man, you know, you've just, you've got a new program on your iPhone that allows you to watch TV. And so you kick it in the barracks and you're watching TV and you're like, this is lame. I'm going to order on my iPhone and have it delivered an iPad because it's bigger and oh, I'm going to get an iPad. Now I'm going to look at the iPad. Oh, and you lay there all day and there's a war going on outside. 
you're in for a rude awakening at about 3 or 4 a.m. when the trumpet blows. And you look and you're like, where's the snooze? Or, you know, like, hey, will you shut that thing off? I was up late playing some game on my iPad. And like, excuse me, you're a soldier now. And as a soldier, you get up. You're not your own. You follow a commanding officer. Strange. Because we were bought at a price. We are soldiers in the Lord's army. And yet we're living like no, we have, we're living like we have no superior. Like we have no boss. And the enemy has done this so well that we could be completely convinced we have an awesome walk with God. And yet we have no intent of ever doing anything. What a horrible place that is. And if that's you, and listen, beloved, that's me. I know that I've been infected with that. Then I haven't been careful like I've been told to here. Because what this tells me is, you need to be careful. You need to be careful because you are going to be taken captive. You're going to be taken as someone else's spoil. Beloved, don't let it be you. And someone's going to brag. The enemy's going to brag. Because, I mean, if he can't stop you from joining the army, he can stop you from getting to the front line by just convincing you there's really no need. And if he can't convince you there's no hell, and he can't convince you there's no sin, and he can't convince you that there's no Savior, maybe he could just convince you that there's no hurry. There's no real reason to be out there. So you better be careful because you're going to be cheated. You're going to wake up one day and go, but I thought I was over there. How come I didn't make varsity? Make varsity, you haven't shown up at a practice. I don't need to show up because philosophically, I'm amazing at this sport. I mean, in my head, I'm a superhero. You should give me a cape. I should be the captain of this team. Do you realize how talented I am? And the coach is like, I don't care how talented you are. I've known this from coaching. The guy that's the most talented isn't the most valuable player on your team. It's the guy who actually gives the most. We've taken people with infinitely less talent and won lots of games with them and told the other people to sit on the bench because those people become very dangerous because in the end of it all, they're just convinced that they don't have to put any effort in. I want to remind you, this is a team sport. And we've only gotten through part of verse 8. Lord have mercy. There's a second aspect that you can be taken captive with as well. Taken as someone else's booty. As someone else's spoil. Other than philosophy. But I still am asking myself, is my walk more talk than walk? The second is empty deceit according to the tradition of man according to the basic principles of the world. And notice, not according to Christ. If it's according to Christ, that's the substance. What is empty deceit? Uh, for what it's with. Um, it just means empty lies. No. If it's an empty lie, I'm assuming that it doesn't promise emptiness. Why would I follow that? Come be lazy with me. Come accomplish nothing. You know, there is this really weird, follow me on this, this weird paradox. We're told not to be selfish. The Holy Spirit makes us unselfish. 
But the Holy Spirit also tells us in his word that there are rewards in heaven for those who are completely surrendered to the Lord and used by him. And you're like, well, I don't want to be selfish, but I want to get all these rewards in heaven. And so what we've convinced ourselves is, well, then let's just not think about heaven and the rewards of it because that would be selfish. But you know, I've learned this, that when a child is yours, they want to please their parents. When a person is married, they want to please their spouse. And that comes naturally. And there's nothing selfish about that. I mean, okay, there could be a little bit of selfish because in the sense that if your wife's happy, you benefit from it. Or if your children are happy, you benefit from it. But that's not your primary motivation. And yet we've been adopted by the King of Kings, but we don't seek to please our King. We've been... And we've been betrothed to the greatest groom of, of, of the universe. And yet we seek not to please him. Because we think, well, that's just rewards. We don't want to play the rewards game. And so someone else has convinced us of empty deceit. And you know how they've done it? With two things. The first is the tradition of man. Notice it's not plural, it's just one. What the tradition of man is, that's, this is just the way we've always done it. This is the way it should be done. And you know what the opposite of that is? Keeping current with the Lord. You see, what a tradition can usurp is the necessity of you keeping up with the Lord and asking, what about today? A tradition says, well, this is the way you're going to do it. Now, we're all guilty to some degree of filling in the lines uh, on the dots. For instance, the Lord told Abraham, leave your home, leave your family, and I want you to go to the place I will show you. So he relatively leaves his family, takes his, his uh, nephew with him and his dad. And heads. But he stops at a stop up in Syria. But that's only a pit stop. I mean, he's going to travel over a thousand miles and he's going to head all the way north to head all the way south. He'll ultimately always go down even beyond that to Egypt and then come back up. It is amazing how many lines he tries to fill in for dots that God hasn't even laid out yet. I mean, we could have gone, this is good enough, Syria. I'm cool with Syria. This is nice. But God says, this is only a stop. This is for you to catch your breath. We're going to do some neat things here, and then we're going to work our way down from here. But you know what it's like for the Lord to say, hey, I'm going to plan for your life. And you stop at some place, and you're like, this is good enough. And God goes, this is only nice for you because you came from a rotten place. I've got something better. You just can't imagine it yet. You're like, but this is good enough. And God goes, good enough for what? I'm able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything you ask or think. Why would this be enough? This isn't abundant. This is just better, but it's not best. And then he heads down into the land of Israel and there's a famine. And he goes, whoop, well, I think we just better head down to Egypt. God didn't tell him to head down to Egypt. He head there on his own. Fill in that gap. And he's like, well, look at you. know I'm going to give you a son. Well, you know, let's talk technically about it. I've got an oldest servant. And in my culture, that works. If I can make him my firstborn by just, call, by, God, by just declaring him that among the elders. And God says, son. That's not a son. That's a servant. And then, of course, his wife steps in to help him fill in the gaps a little bit. And says, well, you know... You know, there's maybe, I mean, he did say he was going to have him through you. And I know that he honors marriage and all, but let's just instead, since he said it was through you, maybe we should bring in a, a pinch hitter. 
a little extra player into this because didn't say through me. And Abram, being that wonderful, mighty, spirit-filled man of God, goes, yeah, sounds like a great idea. And so, <coughs> and by the way, she was a servant from Egypt. Where did they get her? From when they connected the last set of dots God told her not didn't fill them in. In other words, they were minding a gap by filling in a space. I mean, imagine if when you hear, mind the gap, you went and you brought a bag of concrete and you tried to fill it in. <laughs> mind the gap means be aware of the fact there's going to be a space here. But sometimes we don't mind the gap. We actually try to fill the gap. And the gap, by the way, just makes us more aware that something's coming. Now it's a much bigger gap before a train arrives. You just know that gap's there, but something's coming. How much more so with the Lord? There are times where we're like, there's a gap here. Better start filling it in. And God says, no, something's coming. And one bag of concrete isn't going to fill the gap. And it's really going to get in the way when the train does arrive. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Beloved, listen. I mean, this guy has a son from a servant from Egypt that he wasn't even supposed to pick up because he wasn't supposed to go there. I want to warn you. Empty deceit's a real common thing in tradition a man will do it. Why doesn't God just tell us all the plans up front? Because then we wouldn't hang out with them. And nothing is more important to the Lord than your relationship. If God said, James, this is the way it works. On Tuesday, you're going to audition for this. And on Wednesday, this is... Don't go to this one because it's going to be lame and you're not going to get it anyways. And then on Friday, you're going to do this. And this is a new class and blah, blah, blah. And in 20 years, and he gives you the whole thing and it's all written out. James would be like, thanks God, I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> but if God doesn't give us the details all at one time, then that we wake up in the morning and go, what do you have for this day? God gets what he wants, which is us hanging out with him. But tradition of man says, well, we don't have to worry about that. That's the way it's always worked. But if that's the way, it, listen, Jesus didn't die for you to leave you the person you were born to be. He saved you to make you a new person you were reborn to be. The person you were born to be, according to Ephesians, was a child of wrath. That's who you were born to be. But he saved you to make you someone different. Hallelujah. And if he's making you into that daily and he began a good work and will be faithful to complete it. And you are his masterpiece, his workmanship created for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And he created the universe in six days with a handful of statements, but has been working on you for years. What do you think is going to be the most beautiful thing in heaven? The crab nebulae? Think about it. He, he, has spent no, he has spent no more time on anything in the universe but us. I think there's something to be said of that. Don't let people cheat you. Don't let people take you as spoiled because they've turned this whole thing into philosophy. Don't let people cheat you by just saying, this is the way it is. Hear me, trust me in this. But you don't have to check with God in it. Be current. But there's another thing too. And notice it says in the same verse, and this is all the first verse. The good news is the other two are quicker. Um, it is according to the basic principles of this world. The basic principles. Think about what the basic principles of this world are for a moment. 
I know this much. The most basic principle is me first. Look after you. You look after number one. You should look after number one. But if you're number one, you are selling yourself short. You should look after number one. And number one should be your first love. And that should be Jesus. Not just the concept of God. Not just a higher power. Not just some benevolent mist. The real God. That's got a personality that can be grieved. And that loves you and wants you. So me first, what does that look like? That looks like prosperity doctrines. That looks like consumerism. I mean, I hear people say, we're going to go church shopping. Do you know what a consumer is? I mean, in its simplest sense, what a consumer is, is a person who seeks to give the least to get the most. That's an intelligent consumer in the world's eyes. I mean, you'd look like an idiot if the three of us all went and got the same thing. And I said, but I spent the most. Well, you go, well, whatever the case is, don't go buy anything for me. And one will go, you know, actually, I spent one-eighth that amount and got the same thing. We go, well, now you, on the other hand, would you go pick me up something next time? Because look at what he did. He got the most and gave the least. But is that our walk with Christ? Is that what we look at in a church? Oh, God, give me a church where I don't have to give anything. I don't have to be a part of anything. I don't have to give. I don't have to sacrifice. I don't have to, oh, don't let anything be expected of me. But boy, I really, I want, I want, I want. Oh, then we're being consumers. And that's me first. And by the way, that's the basic principles of the world. And you can go to churches where that'll be the case, where that's what it'll push. It's all about you. And I mean, imagine the worship songs. It's all about me. Because nobody's important like I am. You know, and with that, then I'll shirk any responsibility. I could play dumb. I could pretend like I don't know the scripture that I memorized. God's not stupid. He knows better. Me first, my way, my control. That's the way of the world. You know what? You're right. Maybe we should have everybody take a vote. And decide whether or not, you know, that's a very dangerous place. In the end of it all, we should be following Christ. In the end of it all, it, it boils down to not my will, but yours be done. And that flies in the face of contemporary Christianity. And that flies in the face of, of this whole thing where it says, according to the basic principles of the world. Let me tell you what is opposite of the basic principles of the world. A statement from Jesus that says, if you are not willing to take up your cross daily and follow me, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. Hear that again. If you're not worthy, if you're not willing to take up your cross daily and follow me, but taking up your cross will make you the shame of others, the laughing stock of others. To carry your cross, other people know you're condemned to die. You are the least respected individual in that crowd. You're the butt of their jokes. You're the end of their point. But you need to follow me. You're not just going to take up your cross and let people make fun of you. You're following me. That's what you're doing. And that means you are at the last you're at the end of the line. You're not at the first of the line. And if you're not willing to do that, if, if Jesus were to say it in its simplest, harshest tones, it would be, if you're not willing to do that, stop calling yourself a Christian. That's what he's saying. You're not even worthy. 
That's a heavy statement. That flies in the fact. That flies in the face of everything that that's, these people are, that they're cheating you, trying to take you spoil. Basic principles of the world. And don't expect this church ever to revolve around the latest fad. You can get the world everywhere else, but you can't get to heaven. This should be your appetizer. The fellowship, the worship, the study of the word should be so pure in the Lord that you shouldn't be challenged to be tempted, to be stumbled. This is the place where we take baths in the, I mean, not some bizarre, gross way. We take baths. And then I have to realize, I have to take heed then whether my walk really focuses on me and whether the substance of my walk is me or is Christ. Because again, the substance is Christ. If I'm to take heed, I mean, I want to take heed that my my walk isn't about talk. And I want to make sure that I'm taking heed that my walk is about Christ, not about me. Now listen for a moment, beloved. Listen. If you have the opportunity to listen to Christian radio, see how many songs focus on the individual and how many songs focus on the Lord. How many songs point you to a person? How many songs point you to Jesus? Oh, there are bands out there. And by the way, strangely enough, it isn't strange. They're the bands that seem to last. The ones that will point you to Jesus. And there are other bands where I'm telling you, I can listen. There, there was a time where I listened and for an hour and 10 minutes. I listened and didn't hear one thing that pointed me to Jesus. Now, I'm not condemning Christian music by any means. I'm saying if you're a musician, then make music that's different. You know, point people to Jesus. But there, I mean, there are a whole sloth of worship songs that don't even have Jesus in it in any way. The focus is in Jesus. And that is alarming to me. But that's because that's the culture we're in. Now, let's wrap this up. There are three landmark points here now in verses 9 and 10. And we won't develop them as much. Because, but there are things that we all need to gravitate to because this is what will keep us from being the things that were in verse 8. Here's the first of them. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What that means is, our landmark fact is, Jesus is fully God. He's not lacking. He's fully God. I don't need a helper, a mediator. I don't need to go to his mom. I don't need to go to a priest. God wants a personal, intimate relationship with me. And he doesn't want anyone interfering with that. And Jesus is fully God. He's not partially God like an ascended master that you yourself could become one day after you get reincarnated a thousand times. The Bible says it is appointed unto a man once to die and then the judgment. You only get one shot and this is it. Sorry if you're not happy with the person you are. or what you've been, The good news is you can trade him in at the cross or her in at the cross. But this is all you got. You're not going to become a bug or a roach or a president in your next life. You got this one and that's it. It's appointed on the man once to die and then the judgment. And Jesus is fully God. That's our landmark. Anytime someone tries to sell you short that, and usually what will happen is the way they sell you short that is by trying to make you look better and God look less. Second key point and by the way, if he is fully God, he has a right to call all the shots. He has a right to be my boss. And he has a right to be, if he fully purchased me, he fully purchased me. But this is the one that's the most easily missed. And that's verse 10, where it says, and you're complete in him. I don't think that there is any hyperbole, any argument about what this means. 
look at this statement, stare at it for a second. You are complete in him. If you're complete in him, nothing else be needed for you to be complete. Not a house, not a spouse, not an education, not a job, not a, not a place to live, not a situation, not a circumstance. Christ is your completion. And anytime you seek anything else to add to it to complete you, you are going to suck from something that isn't equipped to fulfill you. And why so many even quote-unquote Christian marriages are in great duress is because they're trying to find the other person to complete them instead of Christ. If Christ completes you, the other person will be the recipient of the overflow. If you're seeking for the other person to complete you, they will actually be then the, the article from which you will draw from. They become a well you try to suck from instead of the recipient of your overflow. It's the complete opposite. And they are not equipped to be that individual. If God is the only one who can fulfill you, how can anyone else compare? And if that be the case, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the person. But the bottom line is Christ has to be your completion. And anybody who teaches you otherwise is going to take you captive and make you their spoil. You know, you really won't be complete unless you're part of our church. Unless you're, and again, I'm speaking, this isn't us. This isn't me teaching this. But these are statements that are made. Unless you give this certain amount, unless you're baptized into our thing, unless you become a member of our club, unless you're whatever. And there are doctrines that are out there that say you're not even saved unless you're baptized into our church. Funny, according to this, I am complete. That means Jesus started me and he finished me and everything in between is him. The substance is Christ. Everything else. And you know what I've learned is that God never intended for our walk or our ministry to be complicated. And when Jesus is the substance, there's no complication. Everything else is what makes it complicated. Marriage isn't complicated if Jesus is the substance. Children aren't complicated if Jesus is the substance. The world out there isn't complicated if Jesus is the substance. But if Jesus isn't the substance, everything will be complicated. Tying my shoes will be complicated. Have you concluded that you are honestly complete in Christ? Because i got to say something that's harsh. If we don't conclude that, we are telling the Father that the cross isn't enough. I'm looking at Jesus hanging on a cross, conquering my death, paying my sin, and going, that's awesome. What else do I get? What a horrible statement to make. For Jesus to die when he owed nothing, to be tortured when he wasn't guilty, just so that I could be his, and then for me to say a horrible statement like, but if I don't have a spouse or a mate or a whatever, I'll be all alone. How does God hear that? I'll be empty. I'll have nothing. How can we as Christians make statements like that? Because we really haven't taken this landmark like we should. We're complete in him. The cool thing is the Lord will 
listen, it tells us he gives us all good things for us to enjoy. But I will not enjoy something if I'm not complete in Christ. Because I'll be busy trying to take from that thing instead of just enjoy it. Last thing. Who is the head of all principality and power. My three landmark statements is Jesus is fully God. That I am complete in Jesus. And Jesus is my boss. And he's the boss of all. If he's the head of all principality and power, listen, that means that the devil must submit to him. He doesn't get an argument. We don't find anywhere in scripture that the devil says, yeah, what's up? Enough with that. I'm going to do it my way. When he speaks about Job, God says, hey, have you considered him? Is there any one of you that thinks, boy, if you and the Lord, if you and the devil are in a conversation, you really don't have to mention me. But I mean, imagine the guy gets a whole book and granted he, he learns from it and he has to grow too in it. Job does. But in the end of it all, the devil is defeated by a man who has to learn that the Lord is his completion. All his righteousness, all his portion, all his reward are found in Christ. Boy, I'd hate for you to love my stuff more than me. That would be awful. I'd hate for my wife to go, you know, to be honest, once you got rid of that truck, our relationship just hasn't been the same because I married you for it. And I think, how awful would that be? I married you because you had a couple guitars and they were cool and I wanted them around the house. I married you because I really wanted amps as coffee tables. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I was really hoping... And now, man, we have like, you know, a real coffee table and it's just not the same. The, you know, the thrill is gone. How sad would that be? But could you imagine us doing that to the Lord? Because we can be guilty of that. Because we wrap this up, beloved. I want to warn you. The point isn't to be out there looking for who's trying to deceive you. The point is to keep your eyes on the landmarks so you can't be deceived. So you can't be taken spoil. Mm -hmm. So you can't be lied to by the person that's got the empty promises. Mm -hmm. And what would be an empty promise versus in him dwells all the Godhead bodily? That Jesus is part of it, but you better fill in the rest. You're going to have to work out the rest of it. Or that you're not complete in him. But I can promise you completion in this. Isn't that an empty promise? Isn't that what the world does? You know, you'll really be, you'll really be complete. If you, got, if you got this beer, because the moment you open it up, you know, bikini people are going to jump out of your TV set. And you'll be popular and people will like you now. Good luck. I mean, the enemy knows how to advertise because he knows that inside of every one of us, we want to be important. We've been sold that what important means is a bunch of people from the opposite sex or whatever stare at us and go, ooh, baby. Instead of somebody dying on a cross to make us his. I mean, how dirty our appetite had become because the world had helped define it. It's a basic principle of the world. But the substance is Christ. He says, I pray for us, and that includes me. Let me ask you, are you feeling incomplete right now, trying to get something else to complete you? Are you busy trying to be the boss that only Jesus rightly is? 
I have somehow elevated the enemy to think the enemy's doing such huge things as if somehow he's gotten past Jesus to do it? Has your walk become philosophical, theoretical, and not practical? Are you current with the Lord? Am I current with the Lord? Am I hearing today what the Lord wants? You say, we've planted a church. We've helped plant a bunch of churches. Well, we know how it's done. That doesn't mean that's the way he wants to do it here. I want to be current. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this very beautiful and very practical and simple text, but very, very profound, Lord. And I, I just thank you for this pastor, Pastor Paul's broken heart for a church he hasn't met, but he is aware that there are challengers out there to their faith, seeking to divert them just a little bit so they could feel like they're still being Christian, but not really living it. Still on the team, but not playing the game. Still in the army, but in no way submitted to their senior officer. And God, I just pray that today you would clear up, you would clarify, that you would purify our walk. Because we really don't want to be people that have really been infected by these viruses. We don't want to be people that have been made ill in our walks by these contagions. We want to have a real walk that you, Jesus, would smile upon. And we recognize it's all about you. So please, Lord, today, simplify our walk. Simplify our ministry. Simplify our relationships. Simplify our priorities. Simplify our life view. Simplify our world view. Simplify our ambitions and dreams. We openly again confess ourselves as sinners, recognizing Jesus that you died on the cross on our behalf to pay for every guilty thing and rose from the dead to not just take our sins to the grave, but to offer us a new life on the other side of that cross. As the payment there at the cross, our foundation. And Jesus, please be our boss, our Lord, our as you've been our Redeemer. And we openly again confess our trust in that action, that deed, and our surrender to you as our Lord and our King and our love, may we truly realize we are complete in you, Jesus. That all important information ends up at your feet. That Jesus, you are fully God, not lacking anything. And thus we need to seek nowhere else for the things, Lord, that you've ordained to give and be for us. And that all principality and power submit to you, Jesus, as you are all the head of it all. And Lord, may I never forget those things. I commit, Lord, ourselves to you. 
I thank you for adopting us, Father God. Jesus, I thank you for betrothing us. And may we live the kind of life that is real, where we ourselves can get stoked at what we see you do through us. So Lord, may we mind the gap and not fill in the space, but allow you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.